You are listening to an Emmanuel Community Church podcast. For more sermons or information about the church, visit our website at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, if you didn't know, University of Michigan won the college football national championship. Just thought you should know that. I just lost half the crowd. All you Ohio State fans out there, I'm sorry. I know. There they are. There it is. Whoa, it's about to get real. Uh, well, hey, what you might not realize, though, in a connection with that is that I had nothing to do with it. Uh, I contributed nothing to this national championship for my team, um, even though I had quite an illustrious football career. Is that shocking to you? It was peewee football, but um, yeah, I played quarterback and linebacker on the same team. It's real, you know, uh, but... but Puberty was not friendly to me uh, when it comes to my football career. See, uh, it seems like it hit everybody else on the field, but my last season uh, it hadn't hit me yet. And so I spent my, more time on my backside than on my feet that last season of football, which was this clear indicator that it was time to shift my relationship to the game of football from being a participant to being a fan. Uh, and so, yeah, ever since I have worn my, my swag faithfully, yelled at the TV and appreciated what I could appreciate about football. And you're wondering, why are we talking about this? Well, there's a good reason. Because I suspect that a lot of us in our walk with Jesus have a similar trajectory. I know I do, uh, to my football career. Um, and that is when, uh, when you first enter in and things are pretty straightforward and simple. It's an exciting thing. It's fun to be a part of it. But there's this point in absorbing the gospel, absorbing God's word, and seeing what it invites and calls us to where things get big and challenging. And the situations that God describes and calls us into become so counterintuitive, so uh, intense and big that it can feel a little bit like twig-sized Josh playing against behemoth college football players. It can seem unsafe and wrong. And so that's where a lot of us, I think, kind of do this and say, okay, time to put the jersey on and applaud all the good Christians. But when it comes to me, uh, that's out of my league. You ever been there? I have. Because God's word calls us to some really intense things that feel dangerous out of, out of my league. And that's exactly what's about to happen in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, which is where we'll be today. So if you don't know, and if you just walked in for your first time, you walked into a series we're doing. We've been in Romans for over a year now, and we're in a series moving through Romans 12, through 15, where Paul has shifted from giving us a linear dialogue on the theology and the truth of the gospel and called us to absorb that, and he's now shifting to telling us what it looks like if the gospel really is true for us. If we really get it, what can and will come out of us over time as we grow and transform. And, and so we're now kind of getting down into uh, away from just some generalizations, last week we talked about a new attitude toward ourselves, a new approach to others, and a new way of relating to the Christian community. That's big and it was incredible, but it's pretty general. Well, now he's going to get down into the particulars, and this is where it's going to start to, for a lot of us, feel intimidating. And, and what I would encourage you to, the way to think about this as we go through this conversation, what I would encourage you to, to kind of visualize is this, that yes... You're, as we read this, you're about to feel like Twiggy Josh trying to play D1 football. Uh, but there's a difference between Twiggy Josh and the game of football and what we're talking about. And the difference is one is simply a game between people and fleshly bodies. 
The other is what God in his word has said he will help us accomplish. The spirit of God is at work. The power of God for salvation is at work. The righteousness of God will be revealed from faith to faith in us if we will stay in the game and resist the temptation to tap out and just become a fan. Does that sound interesting? You want to get down into it? Okay. Well, a couple key thoughts you're going to hear from us every week to kind of frame the conversation. The first is this. The gospel absorbed is the gospel applied. Romans 12 through 15 gives us a picture of what it looks like when someone is transformed by the love of Christ. Not a set of rules, an image, a painting of what it looks like when the gospel really takes root in someone's life and what's possible. But mind you, if the gospel is not being applied the way it's described here, what that tells us is we have yet to absorb aspects of it. That's not a knock to the head. It's a spur in the side to say, hey, there's more to uncover here. It's entirely reasonable to believe that I can live this out at the level he's calling me to because of the power of God and the truth of the gospel, but I got work to do to absorb that if it's not coming out of my life. And the second thought is this, Paul's applications may seem disorganized at first, but there's a purpose to his approach in Romans 12 to 15, this application section. Paul applied the rule of gospel love to specific challenges his original readers are, uh, were facing and that we all still face today. Okay, so that's your second big idea, your second thought, to, uh, uh, that, that while it may seem disorganized, it's, there's a method to his madness. If you just stick with him. Think less in terms of a linear conversation and more in terms of an artist moving around a canvas trying to give you a vivid picture of what's possible. Okay? All right, let's dive into the text and then I'll give you a couple big ideas about the text and we'll just get down into the meat of it. So if you want to open your Bible to Romans 12, 9 or follow along in your notes, we'll just read it together. It says this, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a lot of content. Tons of sentences, tons of what feel like kind of rapid buckshot commands, right? And if you're the sort of person who loves a list, that can be really exciting to you. But we got to watch out because uh, there's a lot going on here. There's actually a lot more organization than it actually might look like at first. There's a lot of method to what he's saying, and these ideas really are related to one another in some really interesting ways that I want to unpack. And it all starts with the first four words, that first sentence. Let love be genuine. First half of Romans 12, 9. And what he's doing there is he's describing the goal. That sentence is critical. 
just a short little guy. But it actually is a fulcrum, it's a key, it's a, it's a flag in the ground, it's a stake in the ground that anchors everything he's said so far in verses three through eight that we talked about last week and anchors everything he's about to say in the rest of verse nine through 21. It's this key idea. It's the first time you see in Romans 12 this word love really becomes center stage and you're gonna see it more and more and more. You know, another place that Paul says something very similar is, is 1 Timothy 1.5, because I don't think he's really saying much that's new in all of Romans 12 uh, through 15. I think he says the same things all over the New Testament. In, in 1 Timothy 1.5, he says to Timothy, he says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. All of the law, all of our instruction boils down to this one outcome, this comprehensive outcome, because a gospel absorbed will be applied in Genuine, authentic, heartfelt love for people. That's if you're summarizing all of 12 through 15. It's about this core law of love. Not a rule to follow, but a, a, a value, a core a, a anchoring reality out of which everything else flows. And so it's not surprising that he just opens with, let your love be genuine. So Paul continues addressing the way that we think about Christian community by giving us a picture of gospel love. He's, just get, he's, he's calling us to this image that's possible for us. Um, well, what's interesting about this verse is what's going on in the Greek. See, the verse could just as easily be translated, love is genuine. This 9a could just as easily be translated, love is genuine. Because in the Greek, in the original language, it's actually just two words. It's only four in your English, but there's actually only two in Greek. And there's no verb in the Greek text. It just says, love, genuine. And if you're a scholar in the Greek, what you'll understand is that the way this is constructed in most contexts, what you're supposed to do in that case is supply the word is in between them. It's sort of an equivalent. So really, out of context, this could easily be translated, love is genuine, which is not a command. So why are they translating a command in your Bible? Because they, the, it's, it's Greekness, all right? Like the context is clearly an application context. He's clearly calling us toward genuine love. And so in the Greek, there's both aspects to it. The trouble is English can only handle one at a time. And so they're picking one. And I like the one that they picked because this is a call toward genuine love. But understand, those of us bent toward legalism and translating all of the gospel into what do I have to do? What, what pressure do I need to stack on my shoulders? What standard do I need to live up to? If that's how you're reading this statement, let love be genuine, you're not seeing what he's saying. Yes, he's calling us to it, but he's painting a picture and saying, if you have the gospel in you, the natural product that comes out is an authentic, genuine love. So this passage is both an image of what we can be and a call to seek that kind of transformation as we absorb the gospel. Quick word on that word, genuine. In the Greek, the original word sitting behind the word genuine there is ahypocritical, unhypocritical. Greek word hypocrite or hypocritos or something like that. It, it, it's a word describing an actor on the stage. It's not actually a bad thing. It's just someone on a stage with a mask pretending to be something on stage and entertaining. And, and to be unhypocritical is to be someone who's not faking it, not acting, not pretending, not forcing something that isn't real. And so what he's calling us to, what he's painting a picture of is that gospel love, if I really absorb the truth of what's real, having accepted Christ as my savior, is gonna produce this authentic love, not a forced, fake, we're all fine kind of love, 
but the real thing is going to come out. That's incredible. That's powerful. That's a promise. That's an invitation. It's a reality. I can experience authentic, genuine love. So the gospel absorbed produces an unhypocritical love. So that's just the first four words, y'all. There's a whole lot more ground to cover. But again, it's this anchor statement. And so then what he's gonna do is he's gonna structure what, again, looks like buckshot all over the place. It's a structured thing. He's gonna structure it with these, he's gonna frame it with this big idea in the, in, in the rest of verse nine, all right, in 12.9b and Romans 12.21. He's gonna frame the passage with a tension between good and evil, this conflict that if, if, if we're really gonna play ball, if we're gonna stay on the field, even though we feel ill-equipped, and small, right? Then what we're going to run up against, the huge, you know, gorilla-sized linebackers we're going to run up against, um, uh, they, the, the way he's going to frame it is in terms of this conflict between good and evil. Let me show you. Verse 12, 9b, he just gives us his anchor, first four words, that sentence. And then his next sentence starts with, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And then if you go scoot down to 21, the very end of this passage, He says something very similar. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so as careful readers of the text as God's given it to us, we don't ignore that. We recognize this is actually him framing the whole conversation. Everything he's about to say now, those 10 verses in the middle are framed around this conflict between good and evil as it relates to genuine love, okay? Literarily, that's what he's doing. And one more note on that. Good and evil are not general ideas here. If we're paying attention to the text, letting the text speak instead of infusing our own assumptions and our yeah, yeah, yeah mentality, if we're slowing down letting the text speak, we gotta recognize that they're actually, good and evil are actually to be understood with respect to our relationships. See, there's nothing in Romans 12 through 15 yet that has given us any indication that he's scoped out anywhere outside of the Christian community. He's not just talking about good and evil like, I don't know, Michigan's evil. Well, Ohio might be evil too, I guess. It depends on your frame of reference, right? Uh, He's not talking about general ideas of good and evil. He's talking about good and evil specific to the Christian community. He's given us no indicator yet that he's scoped out to the world in general. And so what makes that really wild is the hard things he's about to say, he's about to apply to you and to me in this room. We don't get to safely generalize it. We're actually going to be confronted with what it looks like to love in the Christian community. The people who shouldn't hurt us. The people we should feel safe with, but who do. The people we should act like we really like, but we really might not. This is where he's situating this conversation about good and evil. Okay, so he's going to open now with the good. He's like, okay, abhor what is evil now, and cling to what is good. What he's going to do in verses 9b through 13 is he's going to focus in on the good the things we're all familiar with, and you'll see it. It's all good stuff. Genuine love is gonna, is gonna come out and be attracted to and cling to these good things. And then in 14 through 21, he's gonna focus and situate on the evil that we should abhor, uh, well, how love abhors evil, okay? So to begin with the good, he's gonna say gospel love clings to what's good. So if the gospel's in me, I will have a nose for what's good. You smell it, you're like, ooh, there it is. And you wanna get next to it and you wanna get it on you. You wanna absorb it and you wanna participate in this kind of good. This, if I understand and absorb the gospel, the good is attractive when it's around me and it's, and it's something I wanna cultivate inside of me. That's what he's saying. So that's what it means to cling to what is good, abhor what is evil, Hold fast to what is good, 12, 9, 
He goes on in 12.10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, that can feel like a buckshot, scattershot, random set of commands. But what the, Paul's grammar here is super interesting. It's really interesting stuff in the original language. See, just like that phrase, love is genuine or let your love be genuine, there's some interesting stuff going on here. Because as much as it comes through in the English as commands, there's actually not one imperative in the Greek, not one actual command verb in the Greek. All the action ideas are actually really sort of ing words. In other words, another way you could read this just as easily is, uh, um, uh, let your love be genuine, or, or love is genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good, loving one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another when showing honor. In other words, he's describing this genuine love as much as he's calling us to do it. Another fun fact is it's all really one sentence. 9b through 13 is actually one sentence in the original language. It's not the seven that you have in your ESV translation. Verse 9 and 10 is really two sentences. Let your love be genuine, and everything after that is one sentence of this repeated ideas of describing what genuine love is. Uh, Yes, your translation's not wrong. There is sort of that contextual pull to make this a command. We aspire to it. But understand, this is a picture of authentic love, not a list of rules to follow. This is not a new legalism. This is not a standard you're laying over everybody saying, this church isn't loving because they didn't follow that one, that one, that one, or I, you know, or a standard you put on yourself and say, oh, I'm terrible, or oh, I'm succeeding based on whether I'm doing this. It's a picture that we're invited to participate in. I want you to consider 1 Corinthians 13 as a sister passage. This was really helpful for me when I saw it. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's in a big conversation about spiritual gifts, and last week we were too. If you remember, his the new action is to bring our spiritual gifts to bear on, on the body of Christ to serve, right? 1 Corinthians 13, he's in a similar context having a similar conversation. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, if I have those gifts, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic, the gift of prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. What he's saying to the Corinthians is you can have all the gifts in the world and you can force yourself and fake your way into serving the people around you and bring real value to them. But if it's not coming out of genuine gospel transformation love, you're missing something critical. You're sliding into a small, ineffective, legalistic way of approaching this whole conversation. You're not actually being transformed by the gospel. Paul's saying the same thing in Romans 9 as he was in 1 Corinthians 13. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. There's no command there. He's descri- he shifts now to describing love. You need love to be in play for this to be valid. Let me describe love, he says. It's patient. It's kind. Love doesn't boast. It's not env- it's not, it doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. He goes on and describes love. That's exactly what Paul's doing here in Romans 12. He's just got a little bit more uh, invitation push for us to participate. You see the connection? I'm beating this horse to death because I think in the West we're so prone to reduce this to law rather than an invitation to what's possible. And that's exactly how to read this if you're going to read it properly is that this is an image of what's possible for you and me. I know you're a little stick figure on the big boy football field, but trust me, it's possible. 
That's what this text is saying to me, and that's what it's saying to us. So what does authentic love look like? Well, as it relates to the good, four things. Not a mishmash of random sentences and commands. It's four simple things, four big ideas. The way the sentences are structured in the Greek kind of dictate that this isn't a bunch of things. It's just four. And the first is this. Authentic love looks like the affection of a healthy family. Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's all to be understood as one big idea. Looks like the affection of a healthy family. Gospel love understands that all honor is shared honor. We share it. I don't need it. The gospel has transformed me. I have all the honor I need in Christ. He says, I am his child. I'm an adopted child of God. The power and spirit of God are in me, but not because of my virtue, even though I've, I've broken in sin, but because of what Christ did in me. I have all the honor I need. I don't need you to honor me if I'm transformed by the gospel. Honor is something I can give and share. You know, one member of the family is honored. We're all honored. So it benefits me anyway for you to be honored. That's how a healthy family thinks. I like when my siblings get honor. It brings honor to the Will Height name. It's all, all honor, shared honor. That's gospel approach to relationships. He goes on, gospel, authentic love looks like fervent response to God in all things. Romans 12, 11. Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. It's all one big idea. Gospel love understands that serving people, regardless of how we find them, regardless of what they seem like to us, serving people is really about serving the God who stands behind them in the Christian community. Okay, you, don't, you might not like me a ton, but, but you don't serve me based on how I feel to you. You serve, or, or you, you don't serve your spouse, or you don't serve your kids, or you don't serve that that guy who keeps coming up to you in the lobby that you just wish wouldn't, you don't, you don't enter into those spaces because it somehow makes sense to you because of them. You recognize the God who stands behind them is the one that you're serving and loving. You're participating with God in bringing value to that person's life. And so there's a fervency to that. So next week for work, I have to be in Phoenix for two days. It's going to be rough, 75 degrees. You know how I know? Because I see... I, I see the, the fun that's, uh, I'm checking the weather all the time <laughs> in Phoenix. I'm, I'm looking ahead and I'm paying attention. I'm seeing uh, that I have something to look forward to uh, by being in Phoenix, even though it'll be work. So I get excited about it. I can get excited about serving somebody and going to work with somebody because I see what's behind it. I see what's coming. I'm, I'm paying attention to, to the reality around that. And the reality around that is that God's involved. The God who loves me, loves them. You ever had God use you in relationship to somebody else? You ever had the joy of seeing God use you in someone's life? Doesn't it spur you on to want to do it more? That's all he's saying here. Fervent service. He's not saying work harder, work harder, work harder, work harder, or else. That's so easy to read it that way. Serve God fervently. Clench your teeth. That's not what he's saying. He's inviting us to see things from a gospel perspective, and that will yield a fervent service to others. Third, authentic love looks like, I'm, I'm sorry, third, authentic love looks like unwavering hope that drives our prayer lives. It says verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Gospel love contextualizes my pain, my difficulty with the fact that it's not permanent. That as hard as it is, as real as it is, as long as this process feels, it's not the whole story. I have hope 
in a future with Christ forever, in a new body, in a completed process of transformation that informs the way that I approach my current suffering. If the gospel's true in my life, that changes how I feel about all of these things. And I know I'm saying this in the face of really hard circumstances. I have my own hard circumstances, but this is what God's telling us. If we've absorbed the gospel, it changes even my emotional temperature as it relates to hard things in my life. And of course, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna recognize in gospel reality that God, I'm not alone in all of this. God is with me in this, in this challenge. I have resource here and now. I have the presence of God, the power of God that informs and changes my attitude and my experience of these challenging circumstances. So my unwavering hope drives a real authentic prayer life, not because I should pray. Why wouldn't you? Again, I get to go to Phoenix. Of course I'm checking the app a ton to see that, to confirm it's 75 degrees. And of course, uh, uh, because I have hope that I'm gonna enjoy that fact, even though it's not a present reality in our negative four morning. My negative four morning is informed by a future hope of 75 degrees, so I'm checking the app. Of course I'm praying. I'm, I'm reaching out and touching base with a God who is present, but who also screams and smells like all that's coming because I'm looking forward to it. You follow? Unwavering hope. Finally, authentic love looks like sharing our stuff and offering hospitality. Romans 12, 13, we contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Gospel love sees stuff as a means to an end, not an end itself. This world isn't my home. This isn't what it's for. My stuff doesn't matter. The only two things on earth that are gonna last forever are God's word and people. And so everything else is a means to the end of loving people, participating with God in the joy of fruitful, deep relationship and helping people discover God the way I'm experiencing him. That's what gospel love bleeds out into in authentic, genuine love. And so, and it's funny because he says hospitality. He doesn't, he doesn't let us get off the hook with like, send you a gift. I mean, that's great. Giving is good. But, he's, but hospitality means actually drawing people into my space, being next to people while I share my stuff with them because this is fundamentally not about trying to do good things and earn credit. It's about cultivating the community of faith, life on life. That's what genuine love's gonna do, gonna be attracted to. See, these are the good things. It's like smelling pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving. You're usually, where is that? I want some, right? You smell it and you're drawn to it. And, you know, and, and why wouldn't you wanna produce that? And that's what gospel love is going, authentic gospel love, genuine love, is going to do is going to be drawn to that, cling to that, and try to participate in that. So much for the good. Lots of fun. Now it's time for the harder stuff. Paul's not going to pull any punches. He's going to now shift and talk about how gospel love is going to manifest itself in relationship to evil that, we sh that we're called to abhor. So gospel love abhors what's evil. A reminder, this is anchored in the very last verse. Again, that framing idea of, of uh, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In this section, just like the previous, while it is multiple sentences, the, 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 the Greek verbs kind of dictate that this isn't, again, just a buckshot, scattershot series of things. They're organized ideas, clumps of ideas, four of them, that we're called to. And a reminder, too, that the evil addressed here is not just an external enemy, but also it's an unloving response from within us as it relates to the community of faith. Again, it's easy here to, to, to talk about the evils we're going to talk about as these general out there ideas. And, and rightly, there are evil things that happen to us that this text is going to allude to. But he's also calling us to pay attention to the unredeemed 
fleshly evils that are still in me that are going to want to come out of me in response to the evils that happened to me. And he's saying, abhor that. Be disgusted by that. Push that away. That's what we're called to do. That's what gospel love is going to want to do. It's going to want to push that stuff away, wash your hands of it, and be bigger than that. So four things authentic love looks like as it relates to evil. The first, authentic love looks like caring for persecutors and not cursing them. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now here's the trick. This is intended to be understood alongside of rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Those are not separate things. One is not, you know, like try to bless people who curse you and over here make sure you're happy with happy people, sad with sad people. I mean, it's true. We're called, like it makes sense to share and empathize with people, but these are understood, these are to be understood together. So we're not just rejoicing with anybody who's rejoicing. We're rejoicing with our persecutors who are rejoicing. And again, a reminder, he's not talking about persecutors in general. There's no reason the text has given us to think yet outside of the Christian community. So these are persecutors within the Christian community. We're talking about church hurt, folks. You feel how Paul's getting right up in your chest with hard stuff? Do you now feel like the twiggy Josh on the football field up against really hard things? Doesn't it feel unreasonable for him to ask or expect that of us? To be persecuted by someone who calls himself a believer? And to resist cursing them, sure, I can get there, but to bless, that's hard. But he's taking it another painful step further and saying, no, the gospel transforms us to such a degree that I am full enough that I'm not unaffected, I'm not unhurt, I'm not unwise in the way that I relate to my persecutors, but I'm big enough in Christ just like him to actually recognize that it's hurt people who hurt people. There's hurt behind what they're doing. There's brokenness and Jesus can heal it and I maybe can relate to that and maybe I can get big enough, as painful as it is, to feel compassion for them where they hurt. And again, if you're hearing that as this condemnation, if you're not there, that's not what Paul's doing. It's not what I'm doing. It's a, it's a mind-blowing invitation to maybe we could be that big. That's actually possible if the gospel is absorbed and true in my life to, to actually weep for the sake of someone who hurt me out of, because they're just so broken and to rejoice when they're happy. Not willy-nilly, but man, like, isn't that heavy? Isn't that wild? That's just the first one, y'all. He goes on, 12.6. Authentic love as it relates to evil looks like removing yourself as the standard. Verse six, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He's, he's confronting an evil inside of us, right? What he's saying is this, remove yourself as the standard. Gospel love is gonna remove, is gonna cause me to remove myself as the standard of what's normal, what's worthy of affection and what's not. Again, these are not separate commands. They're all clumped together. Uh, see, harmony in the Christian community, getting along, and impartiality are rooted in letting go of this inner evil bent that we've got towards seeing people through the lens of our own idea of what's normal. I keep bringing up Uganda up here because I, I got to go there a while back and it was such a formative time in my life. It was so great. But I'll tell you what, you go sit in a Uganda church, man, they sing like... Angels, it's amazing, but the smell is really wild. And the food is different. And the cultural vibe is just different. They have just different sensibilities about things that can really feel abrasive. And it's funny to sit there and be like, well, that's weird. 
that's weird, that's weird. And it's, and it's even possible to get this sort of, well, I'm an American, right? Or, or you know, I've, uh, I've got seminary degree, y'all don't, right? It's, it's easy to get there, I'll admit it. But it's evil, <laughs> it's straight up evil. It picks away at the core of the gospel truth that we are all the same in Christ. What makes us powerful is not a seminary degree, a sense of democratic republic approach to government, uh, a sense of how things ought to look, feel, smell, and taste. What makes us powerful is the spirit of God in us and the truth of God lived out. And so when I become a sense, when, when my sense of normal is the filter through which I view everyone else and determine whether they're worth my time or energy or effort, that's evil coming out of me. It's broken. And gospel is going to confront that and root that out and change that so that I can walk into any situation with anybody and see them as equally valuable and see their perspective as worth my time. You follow? So I remove myself as a standard. Authentic love as it relates to evil also looks like seeking peace and releasing vengeance. Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. He's going to go on. This is all one idea. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, this is where there's external evil happening to me, and my internal evil wants to respond tit for tat. That's justice as we understand it as Westerners. That's natural as the air we breathe. That's the way things should work. And when somebody tries to go opposite to that, they seem strange to us, and here God is, telling us that you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind and the way that you think about core ideas like this because that is not a gospel way of viewing things. He says, don't be overcome by evil. You know how we're overcome by evil? When we play by its rules, tit for tat, as though we are the standard of justice. I am biased. Are you? Is it just me? I'm not a good standard of justice. So my idea of what you deserve in response to what you've done to me is broken. And so a gospel heart that is transformed by the love of God, that's living out love, is going to release this idea that I have any say in what you deserve from me in response to the harm you brought to me. Your evil needs to be met with good. But he doesn't just give us this passive idea of don't do anything mean, don't exercise vengeance. He's not just giving us a hold back command but he's actually going to go on and say, live, well, he says, live peaceably. He gives us the passive, but in this last move, he's going to give us an active that relates to it. Look what he says. Helping people who hate you instead of hurting, instead of hurting them is a nutshell version of what he's about to say. Helping people who hate you instead of hurting them. Verse 20, to the contrary, in the opposite, right? Uh, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I don't get to just be passive and restrain my reaction. Now listen, I understand that in this room, if we're going to slow down and get dirty real, that there's really real harm and pain that a lot of us have experienced at the hands of other people, family members, church members. I mean like raw and real. Like when you read this and you put the actual reality of it in there, there's faces that you see here that bring genuine trauma and pain. God knows that. He sees that. And he's still saying to us, here's what's possible. Here's what's 
normal. Here's the, the, the evil to, to abhor and avoid is condescending to living the way our wiring wants us to live. And that is avoid, restrain, isolate, protect, and if anything, attack those who hurt us. And what he's saying is, no, that's not real. That's just a cycle of letting evil win. The truth is, the good, the reality, the good to cling to is that you in the Christ are healed in him, that whatever has happened to you, he is powerful enough to give you what you need to persevere. I know that means that's a hard thing to hear. That's a hard thing to hear. It's true, though. And to not just persevere and survive that trauma, but to become somebody in the grace of Jesus Christ who can not only forgive, but who can bring genuine blessing to the person who hurt you. I'm not, he's not saying open yourself up to more abuse. He's not saying drop all your guards and stay in a toxic relationship. He's not saying that at all. He's saying where they have a need, find ways to meet the need. Just give them, if they're hungry, find a way to give them food. If they're thirsty, these basic needs, find a way to give them a drink. Bring, be somebody who's big enough to bring value and serve and show the love of God even to the person who hurts you. That's possible. That's not a law to live up to. It's an invitation. You could become someone who genuinely loves like that. But if I'm going to cloister myself in self-protection, if I'm going to drink the Oprah Kool-Aid of as soon as your husband does something dumb, you leave him. Or as soon as you don't like your wife, you divorce her. As hard as that stuff might be. Or as soon as your friend stops, you know, you know I don't know, being the friend you want him to be. As soon as your community fails to, be your, to fulfill your expectations or, or genuinely harms you. As soon as you're betrayed, you're out and you're justified. That's the world's thinking. And guys, in the West, we've been cultivated and curated to buy it in our church. And God is not looking at you angrily saying you're failing, but he's absolutely looking at you saying, wow, what a small way to live. What a, what a gospel-less way to view things. Because you were broken too. You have been a hurt person who hurts people more than you want to realize. But, I, but God says, but I've loved you. I've given you life, not just a principle that you get to go to heaven someday, but the power of his word and the power of his spirit to transform you, to be like him, and to love those who hurt you, to be like him with Pontius Pilate. Innocent as a dove, wise as a serpent, not playing into his hands, being smart about it, but absolutely calm and absolutely willing to lay his life down for the man who is about to ex execute him. You follow? This is gospel love. And in case you're one of those people who are like, I just don't like Paul, give me Jesus. Can I just show you something? All Paul's doing is quoting Jesus. Look at Luke chapter six, verse 27. I say, this is Jesus talking. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Lean in, not without wisdom, not enabling, but lean in and care for those who hurt you. That's possible. That's the love and the power and the life of Jesus. He wants to cultivate in us as we transform our minds. He goes on and says, uh, man, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even the world can do that. For 
Even sinners love those who love them. It's not remarkable. What's wild, what demonstrates a gospel absorbed is when you go above and beyond what the world would do and you love those who don't love you. So just a quick reminder about the gospel. We just got hit with some heavy stuff. As impossible as it may seem to authentically love like this, it's not. I just want to point you to reconsider Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. It's the power, radical, supernatural power of God is in play in this dialogue. This isn't about your psychology, your biology. It's about the power of God in play to make this possible in your life. And he, and he goes on, he says that, that the, the righteousness of God is revealed in our lives from faith to faith to faith. With each faithful step we take in our weakness, God's power is in play to reveal his righteousness in our lives one faithful step at a time. So as we absorb the gospel and take our next faithful step, we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's what the gospel is telling us. It's a fact. It'll happen. I know you feel like a twig on a D1 football field. It's possible to win. Stay in the game. So a couple points of application. I would encourage you this week to spend some time with Jesus and to read through Romans 12, 9 to 21, but with a different frame of reference. I want you to think of it as an image of what's possible for you in Christ rather than as a list of expectations to live up to. I think that's the proper reading of this text. Absolutely, there's a call, an invitation to participate and to do, but the lead foot is, hey, this is possible. This is what it looks like. And then what I want you to do is I want you to pick one thing from Romans 12, 9 to 21 to explore. There's a list of four good things to cling to, and there's a list of four evil things to abhor and avoid. Pick one. Whatever the Spirit brings to you, whatever jumps to mind is, this is an area I want to, 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 to invite God to help me grow in. And, and it makes, I remember I had a flower bed some time ago, and I was mowing the lawn, and I look over, and there's like a ton of weeds in it. And I look down, and I'm like, oh, shoot, it's going to take forever. I got overwhelmed. I almost thought about just leaving it and letting it go wild because it was going to take forever to pull out one at a time and one at a time. There's tons of them. I finally got the gumption, and I decided I'm going to go attack this problem that seems insurmountable. And I get down on my knees, and I go, and I reach my fingers into the soil, try to get around the roots of that weed. I'm like, first one of a thousand. And I go to pull, and it's like, this whole network of roots came up. And I was like, oh, cool. Because the root garbage that was feeding the one weed was the same root garbage that was feeding all the weeds around it. So let me encourage you to pick one thing. Not all of it. Don't get yourself overwhelmed. Pick one thing out of this list to focus on. And when you work on that, what you'll find is that the work you do on that one thing is going to make the six things around it a whole lot easier as you get around to them. You follow? So pick one thing out of this list to focus on this week. And, and whenever you run into that good or evil this week, stop and ask God to help you respond with gospel love in that moment. Don't measure your success or failure. Just stop and ask him. And then take your next faithful step. Just try something. Try to do it different. I know you feel in the, when it comes to confronting somebody who's painful or to being hospitable as an introvert and opening yourself up, I know it'll feel like a, being a twig like Josh on the football field, but try it. Try it. See what God will do as you transform by the renewing of the way that you think, as you absorb the gospel and seek to live it out. Sound good? All right, let me pray, and we'll move on to worship. Father, Thank you so much for this love that you have for us, that you 
you invite us into it. You invite us to participate with you in this love and you give us a vision of how we can actually participate. We can, we can be like that. Would you give us, Spirit, would you move in this crowd that as intimidated as we can feel by all this, would you move and would you help us to get a vision, a hopeful vision of what's possible even this afternoon to live differently and to love differently because of what you've done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.